Hello and welcome. This is a podcast of ukraineworld.org, a website in English about Ukraine. My name is Volodymyr Yermolenko, editor-in-chief of ukraineworld.org. Is Ukraine's integration with the European Union still on track? What's happening with the reforms process? Is Zelensky better than Poroshenko in this regard or worse? Last week, Ukraine and the European Union held a bilateral summit, so this is an opportunity for us to talk about Ukraine's EU integration. My guest today is Maxim Panchenko, analyst and journalist at Internews Ukraine and UkraineWorld.org. Good afternoon, Maxim. Good afternoon. My first question, if you compare Zelensky's rule, which already lasts for more than one year, with five years of Poroshenko, who is more committed to EU integration reform, in your opinion? Well, the the answer to this question would be not that unequivocal as one would wish it to be, because on the one hand, uh, Poroshenko seems to have been more persistent in the area of European integration of Ukraine. However, it is crucial to understand uh, which motives Zelensky had when he came to power. First of all, when he came to power, he said that Ukraine, that he was uh, going to put a major emphasis on the uh, conflict solution in Donbas, which is why uh, he was going to be less uh, less engaged into uh, any, other, uh, any, any other areas. So uh, this is why the institutional scheme according to which European integration works under Zelensky is a bit different than that under uh, President Poroshenko, because the major political figures that are uh, that are responsible for Ukraine's European integration uh, are primarily from the office of the uh, Deputy Prime Minister for European and Euro-Atlantic integration. And President, even uh, even, uh, as opposed to Ukraine's constitution, according to which he needs to lead Ukraine in the the international arena, uh, he is not uh, that much involved in this area now. So... It's interesting that at the beginning of Zelensky's rule, when his office was headed by Mr. Andriy Bogdan, we were talking about the so-called turbo regime or crazy printer when EU integration laws were adopted by the Verkhovna Rada, Ukrainian parliament, with a remarkable speak, uh, speed. And I talked to many EU officials at that time and there was like they were happy saying that Zelensky coped with many delays Uh, which took place during the late Poroshenko rule. Like, he was he was doing this job faster and with more commitment. But with the change of head of office was when Mr. Andriy Yermak became, I would say, a key great cardinal of Zelensky's presidency, many reforms have slowed down and we have seen many reform, reformists sacked. I mean, including the the uh, government of uh, of Mr. Honcharuk and uh, the, the ministers around him, including the uh, prosecutor general, Mr. Rebashapka, and many, many other people. So do you share the, the impression that the, the, the reforms have slowed down? And do people in Brussels share this impression? What do you think? Well, there is a lot to talk about in this respect. I understand what you're referring to when you speak about the turbo regime and the crazy printer. But when you look closely at it, it seems that there have been too little results about uh, about this uh, crazy printer. And there, in other words, there has been too much ado about nothing. Because uh, if you look at uh, the reports about Ukraine's implementation of the association agreement in 2019, the uh, the indexes 
uh, that had to be complied with uh, during that year were not reached. Uh, of course, one could explain that with the fact that uh, most of the year was uh, flooded with elections, first the presidential elections and then the parliamentary elections, and that, and that uh, uh, President Zelensky, once elected, did not have his government immediately, and so on and so forth. And of course, all of this contributed to the fact uh, why, uh, why Euro integration choked to, to, to a big extent. Uh, but also, yes, the fact that you pointed out too about the change of the head of the presidential administration uh, together with the road, uh, rollback of a good number of uh, Ukraine's reforms and they are being stalled. All of this is true and Brussels perceives it uh, because there are many, uh, many crucial issues that Brussels cannot help but pay attention to in Ukraine's uh, not only European integration but also domestic policy as such. Uh, for instance, uh, if we take a look uh, at some of the more recent uh, events, uh, we can speak about the um, scandal around the uh, around the uh, SAPO issue, uh, because now uh, Ukrainian authorities are trying to, uh, to elect members to the commission that will select the head of this anti-corruption body, and the European Union uh, cannot uh, approve of the way it is being done because people that are being elected to this commission uh, have no uh, have not enough background, have not enough uh, experience in the field, and uh, they therefore have fear that these people will not elect a person and other uh, officials to the SAPO uh, that will... I mean, uh, uh, Maxim, I'm sorry, I'm, sorry to, I'm sorry to interrupt you. You mean this special anti-corruption prosecution office, right? Yes, yes, I do mean that. And uh, so Brussels basically has a fear that uh, this will uh, contribute to the unsatisfactory level of uh, efforts that this new administration of uh, SAPO will, uh, will have uh, when considering different cases, uh, high-profile cases including. So this is a, a major issue for the European Union that has uh, always paid particular attention, especially when it comes to Ukraine, to anti-corruption efforts. So that would be just uh, one, uh, one area of concern. And I think the, the, the issue of the specialized anti-corruption prosecution office is not the only one. I would remind to our listeners that this SAP is a kind of a new body which was established uh, under the Poroshenko administration under, under huge pressure from international donors, international community, to establish a kind of a special unit inside the prosecution office focused on high-level corruption. Uh, but it is part of this prosecution office which, which has been existing in Ukraine. But uh, apart from that, a totally new institution was established from the scratch, several new institutions actually. One of it is National Anti-Corruption Bureau, and uh, it was very much praised by its architecture, were very much praised by many Ukrainian anti-corruption activists. But now it seems that there is a hunting against the head of this NABU, Mr. Sitnik, and uh, there was recently a judgment from the Constitutional Court which was saying that appointment of Mr. Sitnik uh, under the Poroshenko rule was illegal bef um, because it was conflicting to the Ukrainian constitution, because the president 
cannot appoint the head of the NABU, uh, National Anti-Corruption Bureau. So there, there, are, there are these legal controversies, because the question is why constitutional court didn't rule um, at that time, for example, when the decision was taken, why it it, it has ruled now during Zelensky uh, administration, right? So, do you have the impression that this anti-corruption reform is um, under under threat? I would say under uh, under menace, under risk, and uh, this is kind of a a very tiny thing, very important thing for the EU and a kind of a red line. And if Ukraine uh, crosses this red line, I mean, uh, deconstructs all the anti-corruption reforms that have been taking place, there will be problems. What do you think? I think there will definitely be problems. Fortunately for now, uh, they have not still come into life. These problems, although there is a perception that uh, this is around around the corner if we if we take that corner. Uh, so yes, as you said, there are also problems not only with uh, Sapo but on, also with Nabu, and it is no wonder because from the very beginning uh, of Ukraine's close cooperation with the European Union after the Revolution of Dignity, uh, the anti-corruption efforts have been the cornerstone uh, of the Brussels rhetoric when it comes to Ukraine. So yes, I, I agree that this is a major red line and there are different there are different things that Ukraine could lose in its cooperation with the European Union uh, if it chooses to cross this line. Uh, first of all, and I think the most discussed one, but maybe not the most, the, not the gravest one, is the possible uh, the possible suspension of the visa-free regime uh, between uh, Ukraine and the European Union, uh, and at the time being, uh, during the recent summit, the officials from Brussels they confirmed that insofar as there still has not been that much overall back, but there is a risk overall back that the European Union will not suspend the visa-free regime just for now. But at the same time, visa-free regime is not something, it's, it's not the biggest thing that Ukraine risks in this uh, sense, because there is also the uh, microfinancial assistance that Ukraine uh, consistently uh, receives from the European Union, and there have been there has been a new agreement signed in July this year that Ukraine will receive another 1.2 billion euros of macrofinancial assistance, but conditional. But this, but this uh, support would be conditional to Ukraine's compliance uh, with a number of uh, of things, and these things include uh, Ukraine's continued cooperation with uh, the International Monetary Fund and its uh, anti-corruption uh, efforts. And as of now, we can see that there are a lot of, uh, there is a critical number of problems in this area. It's it's very good that you mentioned this macrofinancial assistance because uh, it's it, another thing which is another track which is very important. Uh, Ukraine's cooperation cooperation with the International Monetary Fund is also kind of a I would not say frozen, but but it's not it's not having progress. So it's it's uh, it's a bit. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's it's not moving anywhere. Uh, it's uh, one can say it's suspended the program of support uh, and the macrofinancial assistance. A use macrofinancial assistance has always been linked to the IMF. 
So what's happening in, in, in this respect? Because for the background, we know that the uh, the head of the National Bank has recently resigned, Mrs. Molly, and then there were quite a, f- a few scandals around the uh, some people in the National Bank who who gave interviews uh, to Ukrainian press and international press, and they were reprimanded by the uh, leadership of the National Bank as if they they could not talk about uh, 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 the problems of National Bank too much. So what's happening here? Well, first of all, I would refer to your words and confirm that you are right when you say that the process of Ukraine's cooperation with the IMF has stalled, uh, and that's I think that's the right way to put things. Uh, and when it comes to uh, to the issue of Ukraine's cooperation with, AMI, with the IMF, I think uh, it would be good to take a, a broader look at the picture, uh, because in Ukraine there are several, I would say, broad factions, not parliamentary factions, just societal factions uh, and political factions uh, that uh, are either pro-IMF or anti-IMF. The latter, the the proponents of the latter, they usually say that IMF is just an instrument for Ukraine to be manipulated from abroad and so on and so forth. So this is an instrument uh, for Ukraine to be uh, governed by foreign forces and that uh, and that Ukraine cannot be independent in the in these circumstances which is why Ukraine does not have to cooperate with the international monetary fund but at the same time this does not contribute to Ukraine's well-being financially and there is there are sound financial reasons for Ukraine to to cooperate with the IMF and of course there is uh, there is no uh, there should be no fear of Ukraine's of Ukraine being uh, governed from abroad because that, that is simply not true. This myth is so it, it is so blandly fault that there is even no need to bust it. So uh, I would say that the the fight between these two factions and the uh, the political merry-go-round, so to say, in Ukraine, uh, is what contributes to uh, to the low trust in Ukraine on the part of the IMF, because it cannot see Ukraine as a reliable partner insofar as we cannot agree between ourselves, first of all. Yeah, it's it's indeed very interesting this campaign against IMF. It's clearly have so many so many you know parallels in other parts of the world. And uh, we see where it comes from. It's it, it comes from two major sources. It comes from Russia and pro-Russian forces, and it comes from several Ukrainian oligarchs, in particular Mr. Kolomoisky. But there is a huge information campaign against IMF, and I think, in a way, it is succeeding. Uh, when uh, when, for example, the government or the national bank is is not really uh, not is is not really that independent as uh, it uh, had been earlier. But you mentioned previously, you mentioned this question about uh, visa-free regime. There are fears that if Ukraine rolls back in anti-corruption reforms, that Ukraine will lose a visa-free regime because visa-free regime was giving also on the condition that Ukraine keeps on going along the lines of this anti-corruption process. So are the fears justified? What do you think? Well, as I have already said, uh, thanks to the expressions that the uh, Brussels officials employed during the recent uh, 
uh, summit that took place uh, a week ago. Uh, it just for now it seems that Ukraine is avoiding this this risk that the visa free regime is not going to be suspended because that is what directly uh, that is what was directly said by the Brussels officials during the summit. At the same time, it does not mean that uh, we don't have to uh, to worry about it because that's a possibility, just a possibility, but it's looming ahead. And if we take uh, take a look at uh, a couple of weeks back, uh, we'll see that Ukrainian authorities were bragging that come on, we're not going to be uh, have we're not going to have the visa free regime suspended uh, because Brussels will not do that, and our problems with anti corruption uh, with the anti corruption area are not that serious. And after that, several uh, members of the European Parliament wrote an open letter to Ukrainian authorities, saying basically saying, guys, this is this is quite serious. We may not be suspending our visa free regime for now, but you should be paying attention and doing respective things and making respective conclusions based on that situation. So basically watch out. So yes, we don't have our visa free regime suspended as of now, but uh, I would say that we are receiving quite unequivocal uh, signals from Brussels in that respect. That's very interesting indeed, because uh, if we talk about Ukraine's EU integration, of course, we are talking about the association agreement, the, the trade area. But what is really uh, tangible for ordinary citizens was precisely this visa-free regime. Unfortunately, Ukrainians cannot really use it now during the quarantine, during the lockdown, the COVID-19 pandemics. Um, so the Schengen area for Ukrainians uh, are still not fully open. It is only open for the so-called essential travel, but not for non-essential travel like tourism, etc. But this is indeed very, very uh, important thing. And uh, we should be following this, of course, very closely. Another thing uh, which is linked to this uh, visa liberalization is the transport. And one of the key issues in on the agenda of EU-Ukraine relation was the so-called common aviation area. To put it simply, it's a kind of a joint aviation space between Ukraine and EU, which would let Ukrainian uh, low costs and EU low costs enter each other markets, and it's very important for Ukrainians. Ukraine is not a very rich country, but of course, we are many of us are very jealous when we are looking at Europeans, EU citizens who are traveling between the countries for very cheap uh, ticket prices, right? So, it was a dream to have this low cost connection with the European Union, and it's still not the reality. So, uh it was said beforehand, but the, the problem is in Britain and Britain's relation with Spain around Gibraltar. Then Britain left the EU, and it it seemed to be maybe the only positive thing of Brexit for Ukraine. But it's still not there. The common aviation area is still not there. What's happening here? Well, I think there are quite a lot of things to to talk about here. First of all, yes, the formal basis uh, why this agreement has been constantly postponed. Uh, was the what it was the dispute between Great Britain and uh, Spain, uh, which is that is why uh, Ukraine and the EU have actually initialed this agreement back at the 2013 summit, I think, on the, the very one uh, where Ukraine did not sign the association agreement, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, so, but since then the process has been has been stalled due to due to Great Britain and Spain and Gibraltar. Uh, as of now. 
insofar as uh, the major expectation was that Ukraine would sign this uh, agreement with the EU during the summit, I would say that the new postponement uh, owes to, to, to the fact that the uh, transitional period that the Great Britain is going to have with the European Union is going to last until the end of this year. And I think uh, that is namely the, the basis uh, for the expression on the part of the Brussels officials when they said that, that we can return to, to the negotiation, to the, to the signature of this uh, agreement uh, at the beginning of the 2021 meaning that that transitional period for Great Britain will be over by then. At the same time, uh, there, there evidently have been reasons why the transitional period did not hamper uh, officials from Brussels uh, to speak about the conclusion of the agreement with Ukraine uh, this autumn, before the end of the transi transitional period. This makes me think that maybe there has been some political decision within the European Union to uh, not to sign this agreement just for now. We may not know the reasons of that, uh, and one can only wonder, but I think that maybe, that maybe the reason is that uh, there is this pandemic now, and Brussels is just not ready to move on this strategic issue in the times when uh, when aviation is not at its best, uh, when there is a low number of uh, flights and so on and so forth. So maybe it's just the matter of, of security and uh, the matter of, uh, of this being the right moment. At the same time, I would say that, of course, uh, well, there is nothing, there is nothing, uh, uh, well, it would be it would be right to understand to underline that uh, now is not the proper time to fly anyway. So there would not be a major impact on this decision to postpone the signature of the agreement by by next spring, for instance. Yeah, I agree with you, but at the same time, it's a bit frustrating when this tiny issue it's it's uh, postponed again and again. But um, well. If, if we listen to insiders who know the position of Brussels, there is uh, an information that it will be certainly signed next year. Uh, but uh, um, we, uh, as people who are accustomed to some dynamics of EU-Ukraine integration, who were following this saga about visa liberalization, we understand that even this uh, prognosis, even this forecast can be um, put again uh, at delay, can be postponed again. But let's hope. Uh, let me remind to our listeners that you're listening to Ukraine World podcast. Ukraineworld.org is a website in English about Ukraine. Because of COVID pandemics, we are making the recording our podcasts online. So excuse us for some uh, technical things with the relation related to the sound to the quality of sound but we are with Maxim are sitting in a very uh, far away places and trying to talk through the internet and um, probably my last question will be about the association agreement I think uh, everybody knows that this is the most dramatic association agreement the most dramatic agreement with the foreign country you has ever signed probably because it's uh, it's non-signature sparked Euromaidan in 2013 and change of power in Ukraine and uh, uh, basically Ukraine since then is going along the path of uh, European integration and the change of president uh, the new president Zelensky uh, at least in his rhetoric doesn't change very much in this respect so 
Ukraine continues to go uh, closer to European Union. But uh, after the summit, Zelensky said mm, uh, that, uh, if, if, I'm, if I'm not mistaken about the metaphor, he said that Ukraine has grew up a little bit from these frameworks of the existing association agreement, and therefore it wants to review certain parts. It, it wants to uh, ameliorate, to improve certain parts. So there, there is a talk uh, for quite a long time in Ukraine about the reviewing the association agreement, uh, whereas the EU side is quite reluctant upon it and saying that reviewing the whole agreement is not on the agenda, it will take too much time, and Ukraine should first implement what is on the table. So what is the situation around it and why Ukraine insists so much that it uh, wants to improve the agreement in some aspects? Well, I'd say that uh, insistence on the association agreement being updated, uh, I think it stems from uh, from the political considerations, from the consideration that Ukraine is uh, is going uh, it down its euro integrational path. It's a political question, so we need to do more and more and more. So, uh, getting back to to the specifics, yes, I would agree that uh, Ukraine has been pushing forward this idea of the association agreement being updated for a long time. And Brussels indeed has been very reluctant uh, on that. But during the recent summit, uh, Brussels seems to have sent Ukraine a signal that it is ready to, to, to start negotiating the update uh, of the association agreement. Of course, it will be very cautious and it will be quite limited uh, because if we... If Ukraine wants to rewrite the uh, the entire association agreement, this will be too complex uh, because every national government in the European Union will need to ratify the agreement once again, and this will be a lengthy process. And maybe against the backdrop, Ukraine will lose more than it will win. Uh, however, there is room for, for the updates in certain annexes, in sectoral annexes, when it comes to trade with the European Union, when it comes to the quotas between the European Union and Ukraine in trade, uh, and, uh, you know, about this sectoral, about this sectoral things. So, yes, there is, uh, there is hope that uh, the process will finally uh, go on. And, but I would just say that one should not expect too much from it. Yes, we have. We seem to have managed to uh, to make Brussels to sit down to the table to negotiate the update, but it's not going to be uh, a major break breakthrough. It's going to be a natural process of the update. Thank you, Maxim. Thank you for this update. Um, it's it's very indeed important to look at those details because we are always, of course, have our attention to the big events. And for example, Ukrainians are very with huge attention, with huge sympathy, are following the events in Belarus, which uh, remind to some Ukrainians the the uh, uprisings in Ukraine during the Orange Revolution in 2004 or during the Euromaidan 2013. But it's also very important to look on those tiny details. What's going on in the reforms process? What's going on in these technical things? And uh, if the country, whether the country is, is really continuing this, Path, reformist path, which sometimes or often is much more difficult than just uh, making a revolution. So, thank you so much. Uh, we had Maxim Panchenko, analyst and journalist at Internews Ukraine and UkraineWorld.org. 
you listen to Ukraine World podcast. Uh, I remind you that ukraineworld.org is a website in English about Ukraine. Uh, follow us um, in the internet on Facebook uh, and on Twitter. And uh, stay with us, stay in touch. Uh, my name is Volodymyr Monk, I'm editor-in-chief at ukraineworld.org. Don't forget to subscribe and follow us in social networks. Goodbye.